All right, you can be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter number 49 tonight. Isaiah chapter number 49. And as you make your way there, I want to go ahead and give you just a flyover view of what we're going to talk about this evening. So chapter 49, 50, and 51 are going to present to us a grand view of the Savior's work. Let me pause for a moment and remind you of the overall structure of these last 27 chapters. The first nine that we've looked at leading up to tonight of that chunk of 27 chapters present to us the serving Savior. So all of these passages in some ways reflect the ministry and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and present it to us in three different aspects. The first section we looked at last week presented the serving Savior. And then tonight, with the Lord's help, we'll look at the suffering Savior, the suffering ministry of Jesus Christ. And then next week, by the Lord's help, we'll close out this study by looking at the sovereign Savior. Hey, I'm glad He's the suffering Savior, but I'm also glad He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so I'm glad we get to end on that note next week. So with this in mind, the suffering Savior, we've divided our text tonight into three portions. Uh, Chapters 49, 50, and 51 present to us a grand view of the Savior's work, a sprawling vista concerning what happened, why Christ went to the cross of Calvary, and what it means for us today. And then chapters 52, 53, and 54 present a granular view of the Savior's work. In other words, whereas the first three chapters present to us with a telescope, The next three chapters present to us with a microscope. And we look more closely at what it meant and what it took for him to procure salvation for mankind. And then the last three chapters, chapters 55, 56, and 57, give us a gracious view of the Savior's work. In other words, what does that mean call upon mankind to do? What does that mean for us? So let's begin with chapter number 49 tonight. Let's read from verse 1 down to verse number 16. And I want us to look at this first section here in chapter number 49. The Bible says this, Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken, ye people, from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. You know what, let's stop there and say a word about it. We'll we'll jump in there, and then we'll read a little further as we move forward. I'd remind you that this first chapter we're looking at, chapter 49, sort of portrays to us a grand vision of God's plan for the ages. And there are sort of three things that are that are key to that grand vision. Now, this doesn't sweep in everything that God has done, but it certainly sweeps in the most important points of His plan for humanity. In the first three verses, we find God's person revealed. Now, I want you to notice verse number 3. He said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I want to remind you that there is a theme that is woven through this portion of the book of Isaiah. It is Israel as the servant of the Lord. And yet as we read this passage of Scripture, there are many occasions upon which the things that are said about the servant of the Lord could not be said about Israel as a people. There are also a great many times that the things said about Israel as the Lord's servant could only be said about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see some of them tonight. For instance, our text this evening will talk about the Lord giving His back to the smiters. And that, of course, is distinctly messianic in nature. So here's the principle that's in force. God had a vision for what He wanted His people Israel to be. None of them fulfilled that because they, just like us, are fallen, broken man. But when Christ came and robed himself in flesh, 
He embodied and exemplified and fulfilled all of God's grand vision and desire of what the Israelite might be. In other words, the Israelite, inasmuch as they were the people of God, Jesus Christ was the greatest Israelite ever. He embodied and fulfilled all the aspects of what God desired for them. That's the reason he said, I'm not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. In other words, what the law, the ambition of it, the desire of it to make men that it could not because it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He became what God desired. And so as you read these passages of Scripture and it talks about Israel as the servant of the Lord, it's important to note that it extends beyond just a statement about Israel and them belonging to God and being commanded to serve Him. These are messianic passages that speak to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now stop and think with that in mind of verse number 2. It says, He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand hath He hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Then he said unto me, verse 3, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. You see, whenever Christ robed himself in flesh and walked amongst men, it was the revelation of God's person and God's plan concerning humanity. And I love the language there. It, It bespeaks the fact that Christ didn't begin to exist at the moment of conception. He had been hidden in the providential hand of God. And it talks about an arrow maker polishing a shaft and preparing it to be launched, to be sent out to do a job, to do a task. And it reminds us that Christ has always been the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the appointed Messiah and Christ of the living God. It was never going to be a reality that man could attain to God's ideals unto himself and by himself. It was always appointed that it should be through Jesus Christ. By the way, this is what Paul means in Ephesians chapter number 1 when he's talking about how God hath predestined us. And he's talking as a Jew. He's saying he's predestined us, Israelites, Jews, under the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ unto himself. In other words, saying it was never by the law that we would be what God wanted us to be. It was always predestined that it would be through Jesus Christ and him alone. And so here we're reminded that in God's grand vision, there is a person. God's person is revealed. But then we notice in verse number 4 that God's plan is revealed. Now, it would not simply be that Christ would come and and lead the Israelites in some sort of, of national militaristic revolution, cast off the yoke of Rome, and ascend a throne in Jerusalem. But rather, God always was aware of what He would be met with. Because here in verse number 4, we find the servant of the Lord almost crying out in despair. And this is what he said. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. In other words, Christ said, I came unto my own, Lord, but my own received me not. Light came into the world, Lord, but men loved darkness rather than light. What was God's reply to that? Now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. In other words, Christ saying, even though Israel has rejected me, yet still I will fulfill the calling of God, and though they be not exalted, I will be exalted. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. God says, I'm going to do something grander than that now. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. This is the Lord speaking to His servant. He says, in an acceptable time have I heard thee. I've heard your prayer. And in a day of salvation have I helped thee. I've lifted you up. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people. Time would fail us. But boy, you can go to the book of Hebrews and see that He is the covenant. Amen? 
There's not a covenant that is of any value outside of Him. He is the covenant. He is the promise of God to His people. To establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth. To them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, and their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains away, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinai. In other words, the Lord says, Israel will reject my son, but I will still be pleased and satisfied in what he does. And in fact, I will exalt him and give him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. And his ministry will not be limited in scope to Israel only, but rather the Gentiles will be gathered in unto him as well. Do you remember Christ told a parable about a wedding feast in the New Testament where there were guests that were bidden? And when they were bidden to come to the wedding feast, they all made excuses for why they could not come. And the Bible says that then the the, uh, Lord of that marriage feast, He commanded His servants to go out into the highways, into the hedges, and bid all them that would come. He said, go find the blind, the lame, the maimed, and invite them in so that my house may be full. This is a picture in many ways of Israel rejecting the Savior. And so the Lord turning an eye towards Gentiles and calling them unto Him as well. Now here, there's a question that has to be asked. Where then does that leave Israel? Now let me say abundantly clearly, uh, God hath not cast off Israel forever. And even to this very day, any Jew that comes to Jesus Christ can be born again just as sure as a Gentile can. God is not done with them as a people. God is not done with them as a nation. And we as the wild olive branch should not boast ourselves against the natural olive branch. But the rational question is to ask if God has turned away and He's calling a people out from the Gentiles... Does that mean God's done with Israel? Well, just as is echoed in the New Testament, we're reminded in the Old Testament that part of God's grand vision is not just that His person is revealed and His plan is revealed, but that His people are remembered. Verse number 13 says, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted His people and will have mercy upon His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. What does the Lord say to that? Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. So in God's grand vision of His plan, there are three things fundamentally involved. God would send His person, His Son, His Messiah into the world. His people would reject that Messiah. And that ministry would be expanded beyond just the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but would sweep in any and all that will come to him by faith. But even within what we might call a transition of that plan, it's no transition to God, God was always aware. But what we might call a shifting or transition of that plan, God has not let a single one of his promises fall or fail. And everything that he said to Israel, he has and will always keep intact. So in verse 49, we see God's grand vision. Verse number, excuse me, chapter 49. In chapter number 50, we hear God's grieving voice. And the Lord begins to lament the rejection of His Son by His people. Notice there are two things God's grieving over in this chapter. The first is He's grieving over the divorcement of His people. Verse number 1 of chapter 50. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities have ye sold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. In other words, he says, I've not been the one that's rejected you. You've been the one that's rejected me. I've not dissolved our relationship. You've dissolved our relationship. You say, well, preacher, what proof is that? Well, verse 2 tells us, Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and I make sackcloth their covering. 
In other words, the Lord says, the problem was not that I could not have saved you. The problem was not that I could not have redeemed you. The problem was not that I walked away from you because you had too much baggage. But he says, Israel, the problem is that you rejected me. He's saying, where is the bill of divorcement? Where is me signing off on you bailing out on this this covenant relationship? He says, I've not walked away from you. You've walked away from me. You've breached the covenant. You've breached the contract. You have sullied the marriage. And so he's grieving over the fact that his people, though he had been so good and so gracious to them, had nevertheless rejected him. Verse number four, he begins to grieve over what will be the only reconciliation possible. He begins to grieve over the death of his son. Verse four, the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. This is messianic passage quoted in the New Testament. He waketh morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. In other words, it is the servant of the Lord saying, Lord, they've rejected you, but I've not rejected you. It is Christ saying, I am the perfect example. I am the emblem of what you desired. Then he says this, because of that, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I mean, only the most, and I don't mean this in a, in a snotty way or a snooty way, but only the most biblically uneducated could not hear in that the echoes of Calvary. His back to the smiters. The cheeks of his face to those that would pluck them off. His face to shame and to spitting. And even it's quoted in the New Testament that he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. In other words, like a hardened piece of stone. He, it, like an adamant stone. He determined himself to go to Calvary. Here we have the very voice of God grieving over what he knows is the only way that Israel and the world writ large, but Israel in particular, can be reconciled unto their God. You know, I don't know that we think about that a lot. We think about it in terms of man in his hopelessness having only Christ for a way of salvation, and that's certainly true for Jew and Gentile alike. But you understand that the cross of Calvary was not just salvation for the world, it was also reconciliation for Israel. That sacrifice will be the grounds upon which God will be able at the end of of Daniel's 70th week to reconcile Israel unto himself. They'll look on him whom they've pierced. They'll place their faith on him. A nation will be born in a day. And all that is made possible because of his sacrifice on Calvary. I believe, of course, that he died for the world. He tasted death for every man. He's the propitiation for not for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. There's no question. But if we look at things through the lens of Scripture, we also, it can't escape us that a large reason that Christ went to the cross of Calvary was to redeem and reconcile Israel unto their God. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. So in chapter 50, we hear God's grieving voice. And in chapter 51, we see God's great victory. Remember, this is a sweeping view. This is a flyover of what God is doing. So in chapter 49, we see his person, his plan, his people remember. In chapter 50, we see God's heart over the matter, how heartbroken he is that his people have turned away and how heartbroken he is that his son will have to go to Calvary to resolve this problem. But in chapter number 51, we see God almost being uh, roused up like an old lion from, from lying and, 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 and roaring in his might and in his majesty and declaring his victory through Christ's resurrection. We find God's great victory in chapter 51. And there are two things that are noted that he has victory over. The first is in verses 4 through 11. And it's God's great victory over the world system. Verse 4 says, Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. Mine arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. 
For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. They that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Let's pause for a moment. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that that verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews. In regards to, in regards to God's mastery over the world system, and the fact that He is the sovereign God, will one day fold up the heavens like a garment. When He's done with it, when He's, when it's served His purpose, He will simply fold it up and put it away. In other words, the language conveys the idea that God is in complete control and has complete mastery over this world and its thrones. Verse 7 says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab? Rahab is an, it's not speaking of Rahab the harlot from the book of Judges there. It's uh, an ancient name for Egypt. Egypt is in many ways a picture of the world in its sinfulness and the world as a system. And wounded the dragon. In other words, he's beaten the world and he's beaten the God of this world. Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I'm interested particularly in that phrase in verse 9, arm of the Lord. Who's the arm of the Lord? What is the agent under which God has reached out to this world and will one day reach out again and bring this world into subjection unto himself? You see, even that phrase is denoting the idea of the Messiah. And he, of course, Jesus Christ, will be the one that brings this world into subjugation. At the end of what we often call the tribulation period, uh, if you want to call it the day of the Lord, if you want to call it Daniel's 70th week, if you want to call it the end of, of Jacob's trouble, whatever terminology you want to use for that, when the Lord will return in power and in glory on a white horse with a vesture dipped in blood and a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and his mouth... His tongue will be like a sharp sword. You remember we read that in chapter number 49, that He is the polished shaft of the Lord sent out on the target of this world and to bring this world into subjection. So here we see God's great victory over the world system. But then we see God's great victory over Israel's sin. Verse 17 says this, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Now, I encourage you in your own time, continue reading further in that passage. But we're going to jump down to verse 22. Before we do, I want you to hear carefully what that verse says. Jerusalem that has drunk the fury of the Lord, his wrath. Speaking of Israel, who having passed through the tribulation period, has drunk deeply of the dregs of God's judgment and God's punishment upon them as a nation. Remember, this is God's great victory. At the close of Daniel's 70th week, he's singing a victory song. And verse 22 says, Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, Bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. In other words, the Lord says, I will purge Israel of her sins. I will take the cup out of her hand, and she'll never have to drink of it again. Say, preacher, why is God talking about this? Well, because remember, what is His plan writ large? It's to bring every knee to bow before Jesus Christ whether in salvation or in subjugation, and to keep His promises to Israel to present them a righteous people. And when you get to the end of of the seven-year period of God's judgment upon this earth, you find that this song will be able to be sung. God will have brought that to pass. So we see a grand view of the Savior's work. But beginning in chapter 52, we see a granular view of the Savior's work. 
In other words, it's almost like it zooms in on what Jesus Christ came to do, was called to do, and accomplished through His death, burial, and resurrection. And we find that there are three things that are at view in this portion of Scripture. The first in chapter 52 is the promise of God's salvation. It begins by Him talking about the work at hand. Remember where things were left in chapter number 50. Israel estranged from God. Israel alienated from God. How are they going to get back to God? How are they going to have a relationship with God? And on a larger scale, how will all mankind alienated from God have a relationship with Him? So what's the work at hand? I jotted this word in your notes. It's the work of redemption. Verse 1 through 3 says this, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. In other words, saying, Israel, all your problems are about to be fixed. Israel, all that God's desired and designed for you is about to be brought to pass. How is that? Well, verse 3 tells us, For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. The Lord says, you sold yourself for nothing. You walked away from me. You turned away from the well of of living water, the spring of living water to drink from broken cisterns. There is no redemption price of money because you didn't even get money out of your sinfulness. He says, rather, you'll be redeemed without money. God zeroes in on what is the fundamental problem in every human being. And that is that they owe a sin debt that they don't have the currency to pay. Money won't buy it. Riches won't buy it. Wealth won't buy it. Baptism won't buy it. Uh, being a good person, trying to be moral won't buy it. Charity won't buy it. There's only one thing that can buy it. We are purchased not with silver and gold, which we've received from our vain uh, traditions of our fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. God said there must be a redemption that takes place and no one has the currency but me. There's the work at hand in verses 1 through 3. Verses 7 through 9, we see the word of hope. And I jotted this word beside it. It's the gospel. Now, again, if you're a student of the Bible, this will sound familiar to you. Verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted His people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. I love verse number 7. It's quoted, of course, in the New Testament, the book of Romans, when it speaks of those that go and preach the gospel. And that should be no surprise. The word gospel means good news or good tidings. You remember when Christ was born into the world that the angel said, I I bring you good tidings of great joy. And all throughout the New Testament, the centerpiece of our life, the song we sing, the, the rally cry that we sound forth is that of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is almost looked retrospectively at a work already accomplished. And the Lord says, I have done what is necessary for Jerusalem to be redeemed through the work of my servant that will die on the cross of Calvary. There is the work at hand, redemption. There is the word of hope, the gospel. But then the closing verses, let's look at them. Let's look at verses 13, 14, and 15 at least. I want you to notice he speaks of the wonder of the heart of man at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, Behold... My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider." The Lord speaks of the wondrous beauty of the ministry and work 
of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. The first thing he speaks of is his manner. He says, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And they said of him, no man ever spake like this man. When he taught, they said, we never saw it on this fashion. When he performed miracles, he did things that no man had ever done. Nobody had ever opened the eyes of a man blind from birth. But the Lord Jesus did. And men gathered and clamored and wondered at his ministry. The wonder of the human heart at his manner, but not only at his manner, but at his marring. Verse number 14 is important. There's, I think, a common understanding, a common truth here. But then there's something I think we often miss. This, of course, is speaking of Christ in his affliction, in his suffering, in, in, in his uh, torture, and in his mutilation on the cross of Calvary. And it says that men were astonished at him. It means astonished. They were aghast. Why were they? His visage. The visage is your image. The appearance of you. His appearance was so marred, so wounded, so, so twisted, so mutilated, more than any man, and is formed more than the sons of men. In other words, when they were done beating him, when they were done hurting him and smiting him, when they nailed him to the cross of Calvary, not only did he look worse than any man has ever looked, but to look upon him, he didn't even look human any longer. Time would fail me to go into the details of, of what it meant when they whipped him and flayed him. They would take that big Roman cat of nine tails with pieces of bone and, and glass, pottery and, and metal woven into the strands, the throngs of it. And they would take it and, and, and wrap it around his body till it would dig in and then pull such that it just shredded his body. When he went to the cross of Calvary, he didn't look like he looks on Easter bulletins. <laughs> he didn't look like he looked on Hollywood portrayals. He literally would not have looked human anymore. But then there's another truth I want you to notice. And it's contained in a little two-letter word at the beginning. As many were astonished at thee. It's not saying as many concerning the quantity. But it's saying as many concerning the fashion. He's saying the same way that were, there were many astonished at thee. The same way there were many who, who wondered at the, at the horror of your suffering and your affliction. So shall he sprinkle many nations. In other words, he suffered more than any man has suffered. So he'll be exalted more than any man has ever been exalted. He was mutilated such that men saw him not merely as man. And he will be exalted such that men will see him not merely as man. There's an inverse effect to these two verses and it speaks of the wonder of the human heart at his manner and at his marring, but in verse 15, at his majesty. Saying the same way that they lifted you up to mock you, they will one day lift you up to worship you. The same way that they were astonished at the gruesomeness of you, they will be astonished at the grace of you. The same way they were astonished at your mutilation, they will be astonished at your exaltation. And he says, kings, men that have seen all sorts of things, will be left speechless, they'll shut their mouths. For that which had not been told them shall they see, things they would have never imagined. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Things that they never even considered will all of a sudden be reality before them. So here in chapter 52, we see the promise of God's salvation. But the question must be asked, how will that be accomplished? We come to Isaiah 53, and I'll go ahead and admit to you I'm inadequate. Now, I'm inadequate for every jot and tittle of the Word of God. But I feel deeply my inadequacy as we approach this chapter of Scripture. There's possibly no more intimate chapter in the Word of God, Old or New Testament, than Isaiah chapter 53. But doing my best with the Lord as my helper, I want you to view it as the process of God's salvation. Now, I'll tell you, I won't say everything that could be said, but I won't even say everything I wish I could say about this chapter. But I want you to notice it with three thoughts. Notice the first three verses in the concept of the light that was scorned. Verse 1 says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This is the prophet speaking. We could say it that way. I don't know whether Isaiah even understood it. But we might say this is the testimony of God's Word. Saying, who's believed this? 
We've said this. We've declared this. We've proclaimed the Messiah was coming. We've proclaimed who and what he was. But nobody's believed us. And to whom is the... You remember who the arm of the Lord is? (laughs) To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? In other words, saying when he came, they didn't recognize him. He says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. What would it take for God to save Israel? What would it take for God to save mankind? Well, the first thing it would take is that light would come into the world and men would love darkness rather than light. You see, you and I couldn't be saved if they had crowned him instead of crucifying. It took his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary for you and I to be part of the family of God. And so God's process for salvation involved a light that was scorned. Light, the light of God, the light of truth came into this world. Light walked before men and they looked at it, beheld it, and fled to the shadows of unbelief because they didn't like what it showed them about themselves. We see in the first three verses the light that was scorned. But in verses 4 through 9, we learn of the Lamb that was slain. If the first three verses reflect His earthly ministry of three and a half years, when He walked about, as Peter says in the book of Acts, doing good, then verses 4 through 9 reflect the moment of Calvary and His death on the cross. Surely He hath borne our griefs, And carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken. Smitten of God. And afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. Was upon him. And with his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him. The iniquity of us all. I remember hearing an anecdote of a preacher years ago getting ready to board a train. And a man came running to him and cried out and said, I, I need to speak to you. I, I, I'm worried for my soul. And the preacher, he was just getting ready to board the train. He had a meeting, an appointment he had to be at. He, he couldn't stop. Maybe he should have, but he didn't. Instead, he looked back at the man and he said, do you have a Bible? The man said, yes, I do. He said, I want you to read Isaiah 53, 6. And he said, I want you to come in on the first all. And I want you to go out on the last all. <laughs> all we, that's us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By the way, that's not a recommendation of how to soul win. I'm just telling you a thing that might have happened. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, here's something I want you to note. Uh, I'm part of that lost sheep. I'm a lost sheep. I'm one he died for. I'm one. My, my iniquity was in that big old bundle that was laid on him. My iniquity was in that cup that was poured out upon him. There's no question. But remember in the context, who are the lost sheep? Well, it's the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If we're going to understand this in the grand vista that it is, it's important to note that this is talking about what God would do in redeeming Israel unto himself. Say, preacher, doesn't that apply to me? Oh, yes, it does. Because you and I, we're part of those Gentiles unto whom the King of glory has extended his scepter and reached his gracious hand. But you do a great disservice to yourself and you'll miss things in your Bible when you divorce it from the context. When it's talking about the sheep, it's talking about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you and I, of course, are included. And I'm thankful and I never would exclude us from it. He did carry our griefs. He did uh, bear our griefs. He did carry our sorrows. We did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes, we are healed. There's no question about any of that. But the reason it's placed where it's placed, and the reason it's said the way it's said, is to reflect to wayward Israel that though they have wandered like sheep, God has not forsaken them. But rather the shepherd came and died like a sheep in their place so that they could be redeemed. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? 
for he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Here we have the land that was slain. I want you to notice the next point. The process of God's salvation. How would he do this for Israel and by extension for the world at large? Mankind is, is in, in a sin debt beyond his capability to address, is, is estranged from the God that has created them. What will he do? Well, there's three parts to this process. The light that was scorned, the lamb that was slain. But I'm thankful it doesn't end there. <laughs> Chapter 53, verse 10 through 12 speaks of the Lord that was satisfied. Verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Remember what we're talking about, redemption, a sin debt. How can they be redeemed? How can they pay? It's a redemption, not of money, so it can't be bought with money. How can the debt be satisfied? Well, through the Lamb's blood, the debt is satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. In this we find this fundamental truth that Calvary covers it all. That when the Lord said to Talisai, it is finished, it is done, when the Bible says the Lord, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the Scripture should be fulfilled, He cried aloud and gave up the ghost, said, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. And He bowed His head and yielded the ghost up to the Father. When that was done, the work was done. The salvation was procured. There's no need for any more sacrifice. There remaineth therefore no sacrifice for sin. He is the sacrifice for sin. Say, preacher, what can we do to satisfy the Lord? You don't have to do anything to satisfy the Lord. The Lord has seen His sacrifice and is satisfied. Here in this passage, this chapter, we see the process of God's salvation. And then, in chapter 54, we see the product of God's salvation. What does that mean? What does it extend? What does it accomplish? Well, there's three things that are noted in this chapter. Look with me at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Uh, The first product of what Christ did on Calvary is a further reach. Now, there's two applications of this. First, I would note this. In this language, the married wife is Israel, who has not borne any children. And the woman, the children of the desolate, or the desolate individual, is speaking of the Gentiles, who shouldn't have borne any fruit. And what he's saying is, and this is what Paul means when he talks about provoking his brethren unto emulation and unto jealousy in the book of Romans, that Israel would see the fruitfulness of the gospel in the Gentile peoples of the world and sense deeply their need of Christ and His ability to give them new life. Now, that as of yet has not happened on a large scale. It's happened individually with individual Israelites that have believed on the Lord and been born again. But one day, it will be the realization of Israel. The application here about enlarging the place of thy tent, it's almost like if you had a child and you'd say, well, we've got to put an extension on the house. And he's saying, lengthen the cords, the tent cords, saying you're going to have to make them longer so the roof can go higher and so the house can go wider. And you're going to have to strengthen the stakes because a bigger tent will need stronger stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. In other words, he is looking forward one day, of course, to the millennial kingdom. When all of the world, all of the Gentiles will come unto Jerusalem to worship the Lord of glory, enthroned and enshrined upon David's throne. 
But then I would say there is a secondary application of this. And I don't believe that this is just a matter of perspective. I think the phrase, thou shalt inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited, invokes the idea, notice what he says, thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. Now, when you read in the New Testament, you learn who the seed of Abraham is. And part of the reason that I focus on that particularly is because Paul goes out of his way in the book of Galatians to remind that when God gave the promise to Abraham and to his seed, he said not seeds as of many, but seed as in one, and that that seed is Jesus Christ. And so when it speaks of the Gentiles being given as an inheritance unto Israel, I don't think it's merely saying, well, one day the Gentiles will come and uh, they won't come with with rockets, they'll come with gifts. (laughs) They won't come with tanks, they'll come with treasures. I think rather what it's saying is that through Christ and His exaltation on the cross of Calvary, that the entire world would be brought under His throne, under His authority, under His kingdom. Now let me be clear in what I mean by that. I'm I'm not parroting or trumpeting some idea of universalism. We either accept Christ or we don't. We either die in Him or we die in our sins and go to hell. And that choice is up to us with what we do with Jesus Christ. But looking at the end times and looking at the kingdom that God is appointing and setting forth, I will tell you this, that in the millennial kingdom, it won't just be Jerusalem that Christ reigns over. He'll reign from Jerusalem, but He'll reign over all the world. It won't just be a Jewish nation that He rules over. He'll rule over the globe. And so here we find that through the cross of Calvary, salvation is extended not just to Israel, but beyond. And won't just sweep in Israel, but will sweep in the Gentiles as well. Look at verse number 4 with me. There's a second result or product of this salvation. And it is a full relationship. It says, Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, he's speaking to Israel, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. In other words, God says, I'm going to reconcile you back to me. And I'm going to bring you into the fullness of a relationship with me. This again is what Paul means when he uses that language in Ephesians 1. Predestined unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ unto himself. That it would be through Jesus Christ that they would be brought into full sonship and status. Not through the law, not through their ethnicity, not through their culture or their heritage. But it would be through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here again, because of what Christ did on Calvary, God says, though you are a wife estranged from me, though you are far from me, I will through that work of Christ on Calvary bring you back unto myself. Verses 7 through 10 speak of a fresh reassurance that would result. I like this. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. God is saying to Israel... That when I reconcile you and restore you unto myself, that it will be never to be worried about judgment again, never to be cast off again. There is a fresh reassurance that is given. Finally, I want you to notice these last three chapters. We'll move through them very, very quickly. But I want you to notice a third concept in this portion of Scripture. So there's a grand view of the Savior's work. There's a granular view or a more zoomed in view of the Savior's work. But then in verses or in chapters 55, 56, and 57, there is a gracious view of the Savior's work. In other words, God then in light of this makes an appeal to Israel to believe on Him. And by extension, not just Israel, but all of us to come to Christ by faith and to know Him. Notice in chapter 55, there's a word of invitation that's given. The first invitation or the first offer that's given is to come and partake of what God has provided. Verse 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. 
And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Of course, this same concept is revisited over and over again in the Old Testament, in the Gospels, as well as in the book of Revelation. God's great invitation to the world to say, the table is spread, come and die. Come partake in what I've done for you. That doesn't extend only to Gentiles, but to Israel, even in this day. But it extends more particularly to Israel at the close of Daniel's 70th week. So we find the first invitation is to come and to partake. And then in verses 3 through 7, the second invitation is given. And that's to come and to be pardoned. He says, incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. You know, let me pause there and say, I think sometimes that phrase, sure mercies of David, has taken on sort of a symbolic and maybe melodic connotation that it shouldn't. The sure mercies of David. In other words, David is going to make assurities to you of his mercies. Who does he mean when he says David? Well, he says this, Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. In other words, he's talking not about David in particular, but about the son of David, about Jesus Christ. Remember, we've already been told earlier in the passage that the servant of the Lord would be the covenant given to God's people. And here that's reinforced again, that he would make an everlasting covenant with you. What will be that covenant? Even the sure mercies of David. Let me say this, none of God's promises fail. But none of God's promises would mean anything without God's person. A promise only means something if you can have confidence in the person that gives it. And I will say this, we don't just have God's promises when we come to Christ. We have God's person, (laughs) And our salvation is not vested only in promises. It is vested in promises. But it's vested in a person, in Jesus Christ. He is David, and His sure mercies are extended to us. Verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and He will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. The Lord says, Come on, Israel, come home, and you can feast. Come home, and you can go free. Then he gives a third invitation, and that's to come and to give praise. Verse 12, he says, For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. It says, And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So here's what God says, I'm offering you. The Jews in the context, but I think to the world at large through Calvary, is to come and partake, to come and be pardoned, and then we'll be coming and giving praise unto Him, a life of joy, peace, and rejoicing. So there's a word of invitation given in chapter 55. And then in chapter 56, there's a word of consolation, word of comfort and encouragement that's given. Notice the two things that he that are the two people groups that he gives consolation to. Verses 1 and 2, he gives consolation to them that are faithfully obedient unto him. He says, thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice. In other words, he says, don't throw it away. Don't cast it off. Don't give it up. Why? For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, And keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Now this is a very practical exhortation that the Lord's giving through Isaiah. And he's saying, I know that the nation in a large sense has rejected and turned away. But for those of you that are living for him, he says, don't give up. Because my salvation is near to come. I would say this, the same exhortation can be made to you and me today. can get discouraging sometimes. But the Lord says, don't give up. Keep ye judgment and do justice. For my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. He gives a word of consolation to them who are faithfully obedient. But he also gives a word of consolation to them that are feeling abandoned. Same group of people that would say, well, preacher, I just, nobody's living for the Lord anymore. Nobody's serving God. What does the Lord say to those that feel as though they are bereft 
abandoned and alone. He says in verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord. By the way, that's you and me. Amen. As Gentiles. To serve Him and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. In other words, he says, for those that are serving God, for those that feel alone in their service of God, for those that feel as though they are ignored in their service of God, He says, don't feel discouraged. Don't feel ignored. The Lord will see to all these matters. Finally, in chapter 57, and we'll close, he gives a word of consideration. After laying all this out, it presents a choice to mankind. Will mankind receive what the Savior has done or reject what the Savior has done? And the Lord sets forth four things he wants them to consider. Number one, he says, consider the peace of the righteous. He says, the righteous perisheth. And no man layeth it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now, there's more we could say about that, but can I make this passing comment? He says, you know, people mourn for the righteous when they die. And yet the worst thing this world can do to them is better than the best thing the world can do for themselves. In other words, he's saying the righteous man has a peace that prevails over death itself. Then he tells them to consider the problems of the wicked. He says, but draw near hither, verse 3, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom ye make, uh, against whom ye make, make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? The picture is very clear. It is of unrighteous men who are laughing and scoffing at the Lord. And the Lord says to them, draw near hither. Why are you doing this? Down in verse number 10, and I encourage you to read the rest in your own time, but down in verse 10, he shows what a life of sin really looks like. He says, thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way. Yet saidest thou not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore thou wast not grieved. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? that thou hast lied and hast not remembered me nor laid it to thy heart. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? The Lord says, you've not listened, you've not wearied yourself, you've not learned your lesson, he said. He said, you found the life of your hand and that was good enough. You survived and that was all it took and you persist in your sinful ways. The Lord says, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works. He says, I'll give you credit where credit's due, but the problem is they shall not profit thee. They won't mean anything. They won't amount to anything. He says, when thou criest, Let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. And I pause there very deliberately. In other words, he says, consider the peace the righteous has. But then consider all the problems that the wicked have. They are weary and sick of living the life of sin, but because they can't quit sin, they keep living in sin. They're blind. They're, 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 they're dumb to the things that I'm trying to do in reaching them. And they boast in their own righteousness. I'll give them credit for whatever righteousness that they, that they have because it's none. He says it won't profit them. It's not righteousness. It's self-righteousness. And he says one day they're going to cry to God and they're going to expect the world to deliver them. But the wind will carry them all away and vanity shall take them. In other words, he says, I'm offering salvation to you. Consider the peace of the righteous. Consider the problem Of the wicked, but then consider the promise of the Lord. He says at the end of verse 13, in contrast, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth. 
For the spirit should fail before me in the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. He's saying that's what we all were. Then he says this, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. In other words, the Lord says, look at the righteous man and how I bless him and how I watch over him. He was once not righteous. He was once wayward and froward. But he turned unto me and I healed him and I gave him life anew. And that then leads you to the very last thought. Verses 19, 20, and 21. He says this, consider your own path. Consider the path of your own life. The Lord says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And God lays it right down and he says, that's your choice. Righteousness through me or wickedness through you. Peace through me or problems through you. And he says, I offer you salvation. I've secured it all through my suffering Savior. You only need come unto me and I can save you.